Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I am your host, Robert Scavone, Jr. On this episode, we're going to catch up on criminal opinions from July. You can listen to the civil recap for July on episode 24. Before we get to the opinions, let me give you the disclaimers. One, I am not your lawyer. Two, if you have a legal issue, please call a lawyer. Three, the following podcast is not legal advice. And four, this is not an advertisement for legal services. I am not here for your business. Let's get to the criminal opinions for July. Our first opinion is Youngman v. State, which was issued by the second DCA on July 1st, and it deals with the Fourth Amendment. Youngman enjoyed child pornography. To satisfy his perversion, he used a peer-to-peer file-sharing program called BitTorrent. The program allows users to share content on their computers and to search the shared content. Each shared file is identified by a unique user code called a hash value. Law enforcement uses a proprietary program called Torrential Downpour to search BitTorrent's hash values for files known to contain child pornography. Torrential Downpour does not allow law enforcement to access user hard drives or files. It can only locate hash values associated with child pornography. Law enforcement found two hash values on Youngman's computer and asked his computer through BitTorrent whether the files were stored on Youngman's computer. His computer responded automatically and the files were on his computer. Notably, this is precisely how BitTorrent's peer-to-peer services communicate with end users. Law enforcement obtained a search warrant for Youngman's computer based on the information gleaned from torrential downpour. The search uncovered child pornography on Youngman's computer. He was charged with one count of promoting a sexual performance by a child and 100 counts of possession of child pornography. He moved to suppress the images, claiming that the hash values were private and the images discovered should be excluded as fruit of the poisonous tree. The trial court rejected this argument, finding that Youngman did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in hash values. The court sentenced Youngman to 30 years in prison following a NOLO plea. Youngman reserved his right to appeal the suppression order. On appeal, the second DCA affirmed, to determine whether a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy, courts ask two questions. One, whether the individual by his conduct has exhibited an actual expectation of privacy, and two, whether the individual's expectation of privacy is one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. The first question is subjective. The second one is objective. The second DCA held that Youngman's claim failed on both accounts. As to his subjective expectation, the court noted that any member of the public could have accessed the hash values on Youngman's computer. Therefore, he knew or should have known that the hash values were not private. As for the objective prong of the analysis, the court explained that peer-to-peer file sharing programs are expressly designed 
to make files available to the public. Accordingly, it was absurd to claim that society believed there is an expectation of privacy in such information. The next criminal opinion is State v. Rojas. It comes to us from the 3rd DCA and deals with the defendant's motion to dismiss the appeal based on double jeopardy. The defendant was sentenced to prison for violation of probation. The state appealed the sentence, and while the appeal was pending, the defendant completed his sentence. The state asked to have the case remanded, and on remand was going to request a longer sentence. The defendant claimed that resentencing would violate double jeopardy and argued the appeal was therefore moot. The third DCA denied the motion to dismiss. It explained that the double jeopardy issue in these circumstances turns on whether the defendant has a legitimate expectation of finality in his sentence. Here, where the state is pursuing a lawful appeal of a sentence, the defendant is imputed with the knowledge of the pending appeal and cannot have a legitimate expectation of finality until the appeal is completed. The third DCA's holding, in this case, is in accord with a fourth DCA case from 2007. I'll be on the lookout for the merits appeal in this particular case. Next is U.S. v. Lewis, which was issued by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals on July 14th. The question, which was one of first impression in the 11th Circuit, was whether federal prosecutors are stopped from litigating a motion to suppress where the motion was litigated in state court. Lewis was arrested on drug charges during a joint investigation by the DEA and the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. Fulton County indicted Lewis for trafficking in cocaine. He moved to suppress the drugs and his in-custody statement and claimed that the stop was unlawful. The state court judge granted the motion. The state did not appeal and the case was dismissed. Then the feds swooped in and Lewis was indicted on federal drug charges. Lewis moved to suppress the drugs and his statement once again, but this time the federal district judge denied the motion. A jury convicted Lewis, and he was sentenced to 360 months in prison. He's probably wishing the state court judge had not denied the motion. The 11th Circuit affirmed. Lewis appealed on several grounds, including some interesting jury selection issues. But for our purposes, I will focus on the collateral estoppel issue. Lewis argued that the collateral estoppel doctrine precluded the federal government from relitigating the legality of the traffic stop and the subsequent search of the car as that identical issue was already decided in state court. As the court explained, collateral estoppel, otherwise known as issue preclusion, means simply that when an issue of ultimate fact has once been determined by a valid and final judgment, that issue cannot again be litigated between the same parties in any future lawsuit. One factor courts consider in these situations is whether there is privity between the parties. Privity is a relationship between two parties who both have a legally recognized mutual interest in the same subject matter. The relevant parties in this case are Georgia and the federal government. 
When determining whether there is a nexus between parties, the court examines the relationship. Privity may be found where one, a non-party, substantially controls or is represented by a party of the action. Two, the party is stopped is so closely related to the interest of the other party, it is though the stopped party already had its day in court. Three, there is a substantial identity of the parties such that the party to the action was the virtual representative of the party stopped. And four, when the parties at issue are sovereigns, as was the case here, a second prosecution may be barred where one prosecuting sovereign can be said to be acting as a tool of the other or where the second prosecution amounts to a sham or cover for the first. Here, despite the fact that the Fulton County Sheriff's Office and the DEA were working closely in the investigation, there was not a sufficient nexus between the parties, i.e. the state and the federal prosecutors. As the court pointed out, Lewis failed to show that the state prosecutors were acting as a tool of or were even substantially controlled by the federal prosecutors. In fact, there was no evidence that federal prosecutors were involved before the state case was dismissed. Because the federal and state governments were not in privity in this case, the federal government was not stopped from relitigating the legality of the traffic stop, search, and Lewis's arrest. Importantly, the court did not decide whether issue preclusion may apply in successive criminal prosecutions involving multiple sovereigns. It only decided that in this case, privity had not been established. The final opinion is King v. United States, which was also issued by the 11th Circuit on July 28th. The case involves Section 2255, which is habeas from a federal conviction. I know that habeas is technically civil, but the underlying cases are almost always criminal in nature, so I included it here. I mention it briefly because it is a case of first impression in this circuit. King was initially charged with three crimes stemming from an armed robbery. In exchange for a guilty plea, however, the government substituted two charges and dismissed the third. King eventually pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit bank robbery and one count of using, carrying, or possessing a firearm during the commission of a crime of violence. The government specified that the crime of violence charge was conspiracy to commit Hobbs Act robbery under 18 U.S.C. section 924C. King's plea agreement included, quote, a waiver of appeal whereby he gave up the right to appeal his conviction and sentence and the right to collaterally attack his conviction and sentence in any post-conviction proceeding, including but not limited to motions pursuant to 28 U.S.C. 2255. The district court imposed a 135-month sentence, 51 months for the conspiracy offense, and 84 months for using, carrying, or possessing a firearm 
during a crime of violence under section 924 sub c. Fast forward four years later, the Super Supremes in U.S. v. Davis held that the residual clause of section 924C was unconstitutional. This mattered to King because the government's use of conspiracy as an underlying crime of violence to King's 924C conviction had relied on the statute's residual clause. After Davis, the 11th Circuit held that Davis's new constitutional rule applied retroactively to cases on collateral review, i.e. habeas cases. Based on the change in law, King petitioned for habeas relief. The district court denied the petition on two grounds. First, King had not challenged his sentence on direct appeal, so he was procedurally barred from petitioning for habeas. And second, King's appeal waiver, which included a waiver of collateral attack, was valid and enforceable. King appealed. The question before the 11th Circuit was whether a valid waiver of collateral attack forecloses habeas relief based on a new retroactive constitutional rule. The 11th Circuit held that it does. I am not going to get into all the reasoning, but if you are practicing in this space, you should certainly give this opinion a read. In sum, the court held that there is a significant reliance interest in appeal waivers, and that King's case did not fit into any of the narrow exceptions to the general rule that a knowing and voluntary appeal waiver will be enforced. The court and Judge Anderson concurring noted that some circuits have a miscarriage of justice exception to the general rule, but the 11th Circuit has never adopted that exception. Judge Anderson explained that the miscarriage of justice exception is similar to the actual innocence exception. However, King could not claim actual innocence or a miscarriage of justice because he admitted to committing the robberies during the plea colloquy. All right, folks, that wraps up the criminal opinions for July. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and tune in to future episodes. This podcast is produced by my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions LLC. Until next time, remember, case law is one word. Thank you.